All right, kids, ages three to six can head to the back for children's church, and away they go. All right, today we are picking up our sermon series in the Gospel of Jesus according to Mark, and we have arrived now at part 17 entitled, Sower Seed and Soil Conditions. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by your spirit it is living and active, more powerful than a double-edged sword. We pray, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts and our lives today, that, Lord, that we would respond to it as you would have each one of us. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick up our narrative in Mark and chapter 4, where once again it begins with Jesus teaching to a crowd. And if you haven't picked up anything else in our sermon series on Mark, is you should be impressed by now that everywhere Jesus went was a crowd. In fact, he was so popular and people sought after him that for him to have a quiet time alone required him to often sneak away very early in the morning just to get a quiet time alone with his heavenly father. And so here at the beginning of Mark 4, we find him once more being pressed by a crowd so large that he has some of his fishermen, disciples, bring a boat by. They're on the Sea of Galilee, and he gets in the boat. They push out a little way from shore, and he begins preaching to this massive crowd from out on the water. Now, beyond the fact that this was keeping the crowds literally off of his lap, it was also a brilliant strategy in communication because... The water would have acted as a natural amplifier. I know so many times we live on this side of the bay, and it sounds as though we've got music playing in our backyard when it's happening over at the fairgrounds, because the bay in between is acting as an amplifier. I think a lot of people say that. The lake in between, something's happening at the fairgrounds. You hear it all the way across town. This would have been the same principle at work as Jesus is preaching and the water is amplifying his voice which, of course, he knew would make it that many more hundreds or if not thousands could hear his teaching. And so here, beginning in verse 3, we learn that Jesus is teaching to the crowds principally in parables. And then Mark highlights for us this parable, which includes the three main components of a sower, a seed, and a variety of soil conditions. So let's look at it one more time so it's fresh in our minds as we begin. Verse 3 of Mark chapter 4. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, how many people out there, how many farmers or gardeners would say that they had a yield that was a hundred times over this year? Anyone? Anyone have a hundred yield this year? Oh, no hands going up. How about 60? Was it someone in the 60? Yeah, there's one hand went up. My dad's being honest in the back. So that's a pretty good year, right? When you're, you're saying it was at least 60 times over. I think on that level, because we're from a farm, 
uh, based community, whether you're directly a farmer or not, most of us get those basic principles. But there's a few more contextual pieces that I think will help us understand it even further this morning when it comes to the meaning of this parable. When Leanne and I were able to visit Israel back in 2015, one of the unique places that we were able to visit was Jesus' childhood hometown of Nazareth. Now, you'll remember the story where Jesus, right at the beginning of his ministry, he goes to his hometown and, and basically he, he uh, confronts the people that he is the Messiah and they get so upset that they try to throw him off a cliff. Now, it's hard to picture that unless you've seen Nazareth, because it is literally built on the side of a, of a mountain, almost, by their standards. It's a very steep hillside, and that's where Jesus grew up. That's where he spent the majority of his earthly life, was in and around the town of Nazareth, which is on a steep terrain, on the side of a hill. Now, when we were there in Nazareth, one of the places we toured was called Nazareth Village, and it's right there on the hillside of ancient Nazareth, And there they discovered an ancient vineyard, which dates right back to the time of Christ, complete with the foundation of a watchtower and also a wine press carved right into the rock. And so it's quite likely that these things were there when Jesus was was growing up in Nazareth, and it was quite a, a just powerful experience to be able to walk in that wine press and think perhaps young boy Jesus walked right here pressing down those, those grape, grapes with his own feet right here on this spot. It was a very neat experience. One of the things that enhanced this place called Nazareth Village was they built many things there to recreate what it would have looked like at the time of Christ. So they had a, a, a house built that was similar to that time period. They had a synagogue built. They had a workshop built. So carpentry tools were there, very similar to what Jesus would have used And so it really set the scene for what it was like when Jesus lived there, and so you could really envision it. Now, one of the more subtle things that caught my attention while we were there was the remnants of how they would have farmed on this hillside. For that section of Nazareth was built into this steep hillside, which had then terraced fields. And so if you're familiar with terracing, it's where they they have a flat area sort of carved out. They build a small wall up, fortify it with rocks, and then build another step. So it's sort of this terracing, and it is on these terraces where they had the vineyard. It was also along these terraces where they would have had small plots of what they would call a field. Now, I say field because we wouldn't call it a field. To us, it would maybe be a large garden, is about as... Uh, how we would consider it here on the flat prairies of Manitoba. But there, that would have been called a field. Now, this hillside is a mixture of different soils. And so the shallow ground, where there would have been very thin amount of topsoil, maybe an inch or two at the most, right underneath it is limestone. So when he talks about the rocky soil, he's not necessarily just saying rocks amongst the soil. He's saying that there's rock under the soil. There's a little bit of topsoil, but rock underneath. There's also areas where there's just weeds growing up. And, and, you know, without modern chemicals, no herbicides, no Roundup, you could pull weeds all day and all night, and there would still be more weeds. And some of you know exactly what that is like. So 
You can never entirely get rid of the thorns. And then also there were paths, and the paths would act as a barrier between one field or one plot and a neighbor's plot. And it would sort of go up along the hillside, and then also it would sort of encompass the plot of land. So a path would go all the way around to border this plot. So you've got paths, you've got thorns, you've got rocky soil. But in amongst all of that, you have some good soil. And so as a result, the land was precious. And in in comparison to the land, because there was so little of it, Seed was not so precious. Seed was plentiful. The land was precious. And so when the farmer would go out to scatter his seed everywhere, he would just scatter it over everything, broadcasting it in all directions, not concerning himself of whether it was landing in the thorns or on the path or on rocky soil, because the land was so precious, they just wanted seed on everything. Because they knew that though a good chunk of it wouldn't grow up and produce anything, Some of it would, and they wanted to make sure that that seed landed on the good soil. And so they scattered it on everything. Now, at the outset, I'll say that this same principle holds true when it comes to the later application, that the seed represents the word. When we go out in evangelism efforts, when we are witnessing for the Lord, sometimes I think we get too caught up on saying, well, Where's the good soil? I I only want to focus my energy and my effort on where it's going to produce a crop. And we get so caught up on trying to focus on, on where's the perfect target for this seed that we sometimes narrow our focus down almost too much. When here we see that the sower goes out and just freely broadcasts the seed everywhere. And I think that that's a general principle in our evangelism as well. Broadcast the word everywhere. Let's not get so caught up on the soil conditions. Put out the word, because some of it, even in places we may not expect it to take root and grow, it may surprise us when it does exactly that. So let's not be stingy with our seed as though we have a little bit of it. We have an abundance of the word. There is no limit to the seed. So let's be generous in broadcasting that seed, just as they did on those hillsides in Nazareth. Now we get on to the soil conditions. Now, every farmer from Nazareth had to deal with these same soil conditions. And so the audience that Jesus was preaching to that day from the boat, even if they weren't from Nazareth, being from Judea, they would have had similar conditions to deal with. They would have understand, understood this principle quite well. So we see in the breakdown that only one quarter of the ground was good soil that yielded a harvest. Three quarters of it was not good soil. And yet, did the farmer consider his efforts wasted because only one quarter of it grew up? Not at all. He knew that he had to do the work to bring in that harvest. And so now, having set that backdrop for us as we envision this parable, thinking of this this hillside in Nazareth, we can understand it a little bit more clearly as Jesus explains it for us. Now, his disciples had a little bit of trouble understanding the spiritual message of what Jesus was teaching. And so we drop down to verse 14 in Mark 4, where they ask him, Lord, what does this mean? And so Jesus proceeds to explain to them the entire parable. First, he says, the seed is the word. Now, there can be no mistaking that when Jesus says the word, that he is meaning the word of the gospel. And so this is summarized for us back in Mark 1 and verse 15, 
that it says Jesus traveled around Galilee proclaiming, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus is talking about the word as this gospel message, repent and believe. Repent and put your faith in me. This is the word. This is what is being broadcast. And so at the same time, this seed of the word is being scattered. It is also the same seed of the word that Jesus' disciples would later scatter after he had gone back to heaven. And so too it is the same seed of the word that we continue to scatter all throughout the many fields of this world right up until this very day. And so despite what many people say, we have to adapt the word for for our world or the word has somehow changed. No, the word has not changed. The message is the same. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. That is the word. It does not change. Only Jesus can save you. This is the word that Jesus was referring to and it is the same word today. Now Jesus explains the soil conditions. We move on to the first of the soil conditions, and that is the soil condition of the path. Now the soil condition of the path represents hardness or hardness of hearts. The paths, of course, were packed down by people walking over them with their feet over and over again, packing them to almost a pavement-like crust. In fact, the paths were so hard that once the seed had fallen on of it, on top of it, it would be entirely unable to even penetrate the surface of the pathway. It would just lay there right on top. It wouldn't, it wouldn't go in at all. And so it would just sit there on top until birds inevitably who would be, you know, uh, circling around waiting for the sower to cast the seed, thinking, here comes lunch. And there it is, right for me on the pathway. The birds would swoop in and have dinner. So here, Jesus is referring to people whose hearts, like the pathway, are so hardened by sin, by pride, by the the cares and hardness of this world, that when the truth of his word falls upon them, it comes into their hearing. It doesn't penetrate. It just sits there right on the surface, it doesn't sink in, and it becomes easy pickings for Satan, who's represented by the birds, to just swoop right in and just pluck it up, eat it up, and it's just gone. And one of the primary ways that Satan does this is that the word is convicting, because the first part of the word is what? Repent, right? The Spirit leads us to repentance. Repentance involves conviction. And I don't know about you, but I don't particularly care for the conviction of my sins. It doesn't feel good. You feel the weight of it. It's heavy. It burns within you. There's a convicting feeling when the word comes. And so when when people with hard hearts feel that little burn of conviction, they don't like it. They want it gone as soon as possible. And so Satan, when he swoops in, He then replaces the truth that, yes, you are a sinner and you need to repent of it, and he replaces it with the oh-so-comforting lie that you're a good person. You have nothing to repent of. You're just fine. I'm sure God will let you right in 
and you're good to go. Don't even worry about it. And so he replaces the convicting truth with a comforting lie. But it is a lie nonetheless. And if it is not repented of, it is a lie that leads people to the place of ultimate torment in the end. Now you may know people just like this. People with hard hearts to the gospel. Now over the years I've had a number of opportunities to proclaim the gospel in various different settings, not just here from this pulpit, but in other places. Sometimes it's been from this pulpit at various funerals, which for some people, attending a funeral is the only way that you'll ever get them to darken the doorway of a church, or let alone listen to a sermon. And so there have been a few people in particular who I personally know, and I personally know from them that they are very disbelieving towards the gospel, even, I would say, hostile towards it. And so there's one person who comes clearly to my mind who sat in almost the exact same place for three funerals in a row in a short period of time in which the gospel was presented each and every time. And every time I looked his way, he would never, ever look at me, never make eye contact, but in each of the subsequent sermons, it seemed that somehow every time the gospel was presented, that, that we have to repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ, somehow it looked like his face became harder. And, and he looked more miserable almost every single time he heard the gospel. And to this day, I pray for that man. The Lord has laid him on my heart. But to my knowledge, his heart yet remains stubbornly hard to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is a dangerous position to be in because the hardness of hearts, when we harden our hearts to the gospel, the, the spirit can soften, but it becomes increasingly more difficult and challenging the longer we remain in that hard and stubborn position. Now we move on to the second soil condition, and that is the rocky soil, the one which represents those who have some faith, but it lacks depth. This type of soil is rocky, but like I said earlier, he's not primarily talking about soil that has rocks in it, though there would have been. He's referring principally to the shallow layer of soil on top of rock, typically limestone, in Nazareth. Now, this limestone has the characteristic of soaking up heat from the sun. So when it is covered by a thin layer of topsoil, it really absorbs the rays of the sun, which makes this a very fertile couple inches of topsoil, nice and warm. So when the seed lands in this topsoil, it's nice and warm, perfect conditions for germination, and it springs up quickly. However, because of that same sun beating down and the same underlying rock, which uh, cuts off the root system very quickly because it has nowhere to go, it's going to run straight into the rock, and so when that sun keeps be beating down on the new plant, even though it bursts out of the ground quickly, it's soon scorched, it withers, and it dies. And so you see everything, of course, depends on the root system. If the roots are shallow, the plant will be scorched and die. It's just a matter of time. However, if the roots are deep, if the roots are strong, the plant will survive even harsh conditions. And in the end, it will grow up to produce a harvest. Now, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus explains that this rocky ground represents those people who receive the word with joy 
interesting. So it's the opposite of that hardened, no, I'm not going to believe. They receive it with joy. Wow, this is wonderful. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now let me ask, do you know people like that? Do you know people who seem to initially just say, yes, this is amazing, and, and they seem to just be all in right from the first hearing of the gospel? Do you know people a little bit like that? I think a lot of you do, because it's one of the most heartbreaking experiences that anyone who does any sort of ministry work will ever encounter. Because there are always those who will hear the gospel and respond with genuine enthusiasm and seem to grow rapidly. But then just as quickly that enthusiasm fades and today I personally know people who I have discipled and even baptized who today do not even profess Jesus as Lord. And and it's, it's heartbreaking It's mystifying. You wonder. It seemed so genuine. They stood right here on this platform and made the good confession that Jesus is Lord. And yet, as sad as that is, according to Jesus' parable, it should not come as a surprise to us that this can and does happen. So I can't stress this enough. I say it again. Everything depends on the root system. What kind of root system does your faith have? What kind of root system are you working on establishing in your life right now? What kind of root system, if you are a parent, what kind of root system are you endeavoring to establish in your children's lives? Or if you're a grandparent, in your grandchildren's lives, are you working on a a shallow soil just over the top of rocks and you're content with that? Or are you like the tree described in Psalm 1 verse 3 that says it's planted by streams of living water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither? You see, it is absolutely essential that we put down deep roots so that we can persevere in the face of trials and difficulties and whatever this life and Satan may throw our way. Because without a root system that goes deep, Jesus himself says it, it will not last. The root system is vitally important. What kind of roots are you putting down? There's a story told of a 10-year-old boy who decided that he was going to study judo. But the interesting thing about his decision was that some years earlier, in a very tragic car accident, he had lost his left arm. It had been fully amputated from the shoulder down. And yet he wasn't going to let this disability stop him from pursuing his interest in judo, and so he began lessons with an old Japanese judo master. Soon the boy was actually doing very well. And yet he couldn't understand why, after three months of training, the master had only taught him one single move. Over and over again, he drilled this one single move. And finally, the boy said, Sensei, shouldn't I be moving on to learn some more moves than just this one? The sensei replied, This is the only move that you need to know. It's the only one I will ever have to teach you. 
And so, not quite understanding this reply, but believing his teacher knew best, the boy kept training with this one maneuver. Well, several months later, the sensei took the boy to his first competitive tournament. Surprising himself, the boy very easily won his first two matches using his one single move. The third match proved to be more difficult, but after some time, his opponent became impatient, charged him, and the boy once again deftly used his one move to throw his opponent and win the match. Still amazed by his success, the boy had now proceeded all the way to the finals. This time, his opponent was bigger, stronger, and much more experienced. For a while, it appeared that the boy was overmatched. Concerned that the boy might get hurt, the referee called a timeout, and he was about to call the match when the sensei intervened and said to the official, no, let him continue for just a little bit longer. So the match resumed. His opponent then made a critical error. And instinctively, the boy used his one move to smoothly throw his much larger opponent, opponent, score the point, and win the match. He became the tournament champion, and everyone cheered, lifting the boy up on their shoulders. While on the way home, the boy and the sensei reviewed every move in every match, And finally, the boy asked what was really on his mind. And he said, Sensei, how did I win this tournament only knowing one single move? To which the sensei replied, you won for two reasons. First, you have almost mastered one of the most difficult throws in all of judo. The second reason is that the only known defense for that throw is for your opponent to grab you by the left arm. Isn't that something? It turns out that the boy's biggest weakness, having only one arm, became his biggest strength. And because he had so established this one strength, he had worked at it tirelessly over and over again. In this sense, the roots had gone deep. He had mastered this one technique. And so it enabled him to have victory after victory after victory. And so it is the reason that I believe so many Christians wilt when they face the scorching heat of trials and tribulations and adversity is that they have a shallow root system. They have not mastered this all-important thing of sending your roots deep. They have failed to go on to maturity in Christ. And so this is why the Bible throughout teaches that it's so vitally important that we keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. Not just a shallow knowledge of it, but it says go on to maturity. Watch your life and doctrine closely, Paul said to Timothy. It's also why Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be rooted and established in love. Rooted, established, firm. A shallow Christian faith simply cannot survive times of trouble. But those who are not content with a shallow faith, those who go on to maturity, will discover that in Christ our weakness actually becomes strength as his power works within us, as we grow in faith in him, and he works his will out in our lives and through our lives. And so I ask again, how's your roots? How is your root system? Is it shallow or is it deep and growing deeper? Are the troubles of this life knocking you out or are they making you stronger? The fact is you cannot go too deep. 
It is impossible. No matter how much you have grown in the faith, there is yet more growing to do. Until we reach heaven's shores, we can always go deeper in the faith. There is no such thing as having arrived spiritually until we're in heaven. That is when we will arrive. While we're on this side, we must go deeper. So I encourage you today, persevere in Christian fellowship. Persevere in worship. Persevere in service, in prayer, in study of the word. Neutral Christianity simply is not a thing. Passive faith is not a thing that Jesus ever condoned. For either we are moving forward, we are going deeper, or we are slipping backward. And there are no secure plateaus and no exceptions to this. And that is why we must daily rely upon the power of the Spirit to keep moving forward, to persevere, and to grow ever deeper in our faith. Now we move on to the third soil condition, and that is the thorny soil. The thorns, of course, grow up quickly and choke out plants. The weeds consume the water as well, and they also take away the nutrients that could be used for the plants, and so eventually they'll be stunted and possibly even die. Jesus explained that those thorns represent the cares of this life and the desire for wealth, which choke out the word of God, and so we become fruitless in God's service. He also explains that the pursuit of worldly wealth consumes the energy that ought to be used in the pursuit of spiritual health and productivity. And so, whether we are withering or die out entirely, in the end, Jesus says that those in the thorny soil do not produce anything that has eternal value. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13 explains it like this. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any eternal value. So my friends, how's the condition of your soil? Is it weed-free and fixed on living for the praise of God and for things of eternal value? Or are the thorns choking you out so that all you are primarily focused on and your energy is directed to is the cares of this life? Right? The, the success of, of your career, your business, your ventures, whatever that might look like for you. Is that where all of your energy is focused? On material things and material success? If so, I would encourage you to take the Lord at his word and repent. Repent of this, for this is not the Lord's will for his children. We repent, we ask for the Lord's forgiveness when our motives of our life and our energy are directed at the wrong thing. And we ask for his power to free us of those weeds that would choke out his work within us. And then having repented, we then put on those work gloves and we start pulling those weeds. Now, when I was a teenager, my summer job, one of them, was I would work at a neighbor's extremely large raspberry orchard. And my job was to pull out the thistles of the raspberry patch. Now, raspberries, if you have any experience with them, are scratchy enough by themselves, let alone, well, thistles are thistles. And so, yeah, by the end of the summer, my arms sometimes would look just like they'd been through barbed wire. But that was just between raspberries and thistles. It just went with the territory. But he compensated us more than fairly for this very <laughs> less than appealing work. 
And so I remember one of the first times that he hired me. And I, I went there in this massive raspberry orchard is before me, row upon row, acres of raspberries. And I remember looking down the rows and seeing that as tall as the raspberries were, the thistles were taller. They were jutting out of the tops of these raspberries in all directions. And he just said, there it is, get to it. And I remember feeling so demoralized at the volume of thistles before me that I thought to myself, it's impossible. I will never, ever get it done. But then, he's paying me to do this, so I may as well get started. And so I did. I put my head down and I got to work. And I'd put in a few hours every day through the summer. Day after day, I'd go back. I'd ride my bike over and I'd keep pulling thistles. Day after day, row after row. And a few weeks later... I'd be amazed to look back and realize that I'd just finished the last row. We had covered them all. And yeah, I'd made some good pocket change in the process. And then, of course, there was always the, oh, and now you can start back at the beginning because they kept growing. But that's a part of the process because it was chipping away at it. Rather than being overwhelmed and saying, I'll never get rid of all these weeds, you have to start. And before you know it, you realize you're making progress. And it's the exact same way in our lives. So often we look at all these weeds that are choking us out. We realize God's saying, that doesn't belong, that doesn't belong. You've got to get rid of that. And we say, there's so many of them, Lord. I don't even know where to begin. And sometimes the Lord says, just begin. Just begin. Get started. Get serious about this. And you might be amazed in a very short time when you look back to say, look how far I've come. Yeah, there's still some more weeds. There always will be. But get started. Put your work gloves on. Agree with the Lord, and you might be amazed at what he will do in your life in the not-too-distant future. Now we come to the final soil condition, the good soil, which represents those who accept the word and produce a harvest. Now, of course, this is where we all want to be, right? This is where we ought to aim to be, is in that good soil. The first way, of course, that we are the soil, the good soil, is that we have responded to the gospel. We have personally responded to the message of Jesus Christ to repent, to believe, and put our faith in him. And so if that is something you have already done and you are following him as the master of your life, then you don't have to wonder about it. You are part of the good soil. But as the saying goes, don't tell me, show me. Because the common denominator of good soil, according to Jesus' parable, is that it produces a harvest. Now what do we take that to mean? Is the harvest merely a one-time event that we just receive the word? Is that all that it is? Well, clearly not, because some of the earlier soils had the one-time event of receiving the word, but they did not go on to produce a harvest. No, this is more than just a one-time event. This is the trajectory of a life that is, has the consistency of producing a harvest, something of eternal value. So let me put it to you another way. If you're a farmer and you have a field that produced a bumper crop this year, it was one of those 100-fold fields and you just didn't want to admit it this morning when I asked you to put up your hand, you had one of those fields. Are you going to let that same field lie fallow next year? Are you going to let it sit there and do nothing? Of course not. 
No, no, no. You are going to re-fertilize. You are going to replenish that soil. And yes, you are going to seed another crop anticipating another harvest. Well, it's the same way with us. The Lord repeatedly tills up the soil of our hearts. He fertilizes it with his love and with his power and with his wisdom so that we can continue to produce a crop for him throughout our lives. To be certain, God, of course, knows we need periods of rest in between. It's not just nonstop harvest. There, there has to be times in between. The seasons come and go. But for good soil, there is no excuse for lying fallow for extended periods, for year after year. There is no room to say, well, look at all the good crops I've produced in the past. The farmer can't possibly expect me to produce another one, can he? Well, yes, he can, and he does. It's no more unreasonable for God to expect us to continue to produce fruit for his kingdom our entire lives as it is for a farmer to expect his field to yield a crop year after year. Of course, the size of the yield differs. Jesus pointed that out. We're not to compare ourselves with others. But the bottom line is that no matter the yield, there is a harvest. It continues. So the question as we close is this. What is your life producing? What is my life producing for God's kingdom that has eternal value? In conclusion, if you really desire to have a spiritually productive life that will impact eternity, it is available for us right now through the power of Jesus Christ at work in our lives. There's an old story told that one day a student came to the great philosopher Plato and asked him how he could have true knowledge and wisdom. Well, Plato told the student to follow him down to the river. The teacher then waded out into the river and called for the student to come and join him. When he did, the teacher then told the student to dunk himself under the water. And while thinking this all kind of strange, he thought, well, this is Plato. He knows what he's doing. And so trusting him, he plunged himself under the water. But just as he did, Plato reached out his hand and held him under the water. Well, the student fought desperately, trying to come up for a breath of air, but Plato wouldn't let him up. And finally, until the last moment he's thrashing and spluttering, finally, he let him up out of the water. Well, the spluttering student, what was that all about? Why, why did you try to drown me? And to that, Plato replied, when you desire knowledge as desperately as you just desired the air you now breathe, then you shall find it. Well, our Lord said something quite similar. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What do you desire most in your life? Do you desire the things of this world, or do you desire the righteousness of God? What you desire, that is what you will truly find. And so I pray that our desire would be for God, for his righteousness, and that our lives would produce a harvest of righteousness that will last into eternity. For that is the only thing in this life that is truly of any value. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, search our hearts and try us. For, Lord, you know truly the condition of our hearts, the condition of our soil, the condition of our roots. You see it all together. 
And it's not our evaluation or our assessment that matters, but yours, for yours is the only true assessment. And so, Lord, assess us, try us, and show us, Lord, the condition of our hearts and the condition of our lives. Show us, Lord, if it is shallow soil. Or, Lord, if, if there are hard hearts. And, Lord, most of all, if there are thorns. For, Lord, we recognize that the thorns, oh, they can grow up so quickly. And one day we can be saying, yes, Lord, and just following with all that we have. And the next day we wonder, where did that thorn come from? Why is that suddenly there? And some of us, Lord, we have left that field untended for so long that there are many thorns. And we have that daunting feeling of saying, oh, where do I even begin? Oh, Lord, grant us the grace today to repent of that, to repent of the thorns, to repent of shallowness. And oh, Lord, forgive us. And give us the desire and the power to say, Lord, nothing but your will for our lives, nothing but your righteousness. And then, Lord, help us to put on those work gloves and begin to pull those weeds. For, Lord, that is your work and your will for each one of us so that we can truly produce a harvest of righteousness that will last into eternity for your glory. To this we commit ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen.